Good morning. My name is Drew, and I am glad that you are with us today. We are in week five of a six-week series that we've, enti- we've titled Sincerely Paul. And during the series, what we've done is that we have taken the letters that the Apostle Paul had written to churches that he either planted and started or ones that had reached out to him that needed a little bit of help. And taking a look at each one of those letters and tried our best to understand them a little bit more deeply and understand the purpose to why they were written to them at that time and how it can be beneficial for us today as we look at it. And so for this Sunday, we are going to look at the letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, and we're going to look at the first one. So 1 Corinthians is going to be the letter that we are in today. But again, um, part of the reason we're doing this is we want to make sure that we have a good understanding of Scripture and understand how accessible it is, and that way that when we go to apply it to our lives, it's a little bit more familiar. And I'm a visual learner, and so because of that, I have a map for us today that I want us to take a look at. So on this map, you can see where Corinth is at. It's in Greece, but you can see Thessalonica, Philippi, Ephesus, and some of the others there. So these are some places that we've talked about. These are letters that you probably recognize, and this is where they were in relation to each other. So you see that Corinth is a port city. It's a city of influence socially and economically. And this was kind of a strategy that Paul had that a lot of times when he would go to places, he wanted to go to places that had influences, go to places where things were happening that he could influence there and then it would be spread out from there. It was a way of him being a little bit more productive, spirit-led, but also productive. And so that is the background. That is where Corinth is at. And along with it, what I'd like to do for us this morning is read a little bit of how Paul got to Corinth. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Acts 18. We're going to start in verse 1. And again, this is the account that we have. of This is how Paul got to Corinth originally. Acts 18, starting in verse 1, says this. After this, he, which is Paul, left Athens and went to Corinth where he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who, was rec- who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius, who was the ruler there in Italy and Rome, ordered that all the Jews were to leave Rome. Paul came to them, and since they were of the same occupation, tent makers by trade, he stayed with them and they worked. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself to the preaching of the word and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. When they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his clothes and told them, your blood is on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So he left there and went to the house of a man called Titius, Justice, a worshiper of God, whose house was right next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord along with his whole household. Many Corinthians, when they heard, believed, and were baptized. The Lord said to Paul in a night vision, don't be afraid, but keep on speaking and don't be silent, for I am with you and no one will lay a hand on you to hurt you, because I have many people in this city. He stayed there for a year and a half teaching the word of God among them. 
So we see a little bit of context here. We see that Paul, first of all, supported himself by tent making. So one of his practices when he would go into these towns is he would go to the synagogue, and for the most part, he would uh, spend his Sabbath time teaching there, which meant the day off on Saturday, he would spend there teaching. But throughout the rest of the week, he needed to make a living. And the way he did that was by tent making. So he found other tent makers. Priscilla and Aquila. He meets them. They're from Italy. They're just gotten there. They are followers of Jesus. And so because of this, they kind of team up and he stays with them. Then Timothy and Silas show up so they can take over the tent making and Paul can devote himself to the teaching of God's word and to try to convince the Jewish people that Jesus is the Messiah. And like what happens a lot of times with Paul, when he gets to the synagogue and is trying to convince the Jews, it doesn't go great. So he tries his best, but then eventually gets to the point where he says, you know what, I'm going to push pause on this, and I'm going to go to the Gentiles, which are the non-Jewish people, and I'm going to share the hope of Jesus with them. So he does that. He goes, and the house right next door to the synagogue, Titius lives there. And he tells him, and he becomes a follower of Jesus. But then the ruler of the synagogue kind of catches on, and he becomes a believer in his entire household. And then it goes on to say, many Corinthians heard, believed, and were baptized. And that's a common thread and a common theme that we see in Scripture, that when someone hears the gospel, they respond to it, they believe, and then out of that response, they are baptized. That's why we practice that here. But if you notice, Titius, that's a Gentile name. And as I said earlier, Crispus is a Jewish name. So what we're starting to see is this new church that's being formed in Corinth is one that's made up of Jews and Gentiles. And we're going to see here that Paul stays for a year and a half and is working out what this looks like. Final notes of context. I know I said earlier that this was the first letter to the Corinthians. It's the first letter that we have. This is actually the second letter that Paul has written to the, court, to the Corinthians. We just don't have copies of the first one. And the first one wasn't one that was held on to and that, that the early church believed had a lot of foundation for, the teach, for teaching, and so it was not included in the canon, but we also don't have a copy of it. So this is actually the second letter, and we read that in 5.9 that he had previously written to them. And we also read in 1 Corinthians 1.11 that he's writing this letter because he had received reports from Chloe's household that there were some problems going on in the church. And just so we're clear, so what would happen, a church looked very different in the early, um, right after Jesus, in those early times. And then they didn't have a building to meet in, so they met in homes. And there would be people in those homes, the person who lived there would be the leader of that. And Chloe was one of the major leaders in the early church movement there in Corinth. And so she wrote a letter to Paul saying, hey, we're having some trouble here. Can you help us out? And again, for a little bit of context, this also happened in 55 AD. So this is about 25 years or 50 years after uh, Christ died. So this is, there's already problems in the church and Christ hasn't been gone that long. Um, and so this, but this is what Paul's doing in this letter is he's writing to address these problems. When I was in middle school, there was a practice in my middle school that was quite popular um, that I didn't participate in much because I was, I was a pretty good kid. I didn't get in a whole lot of trouble. But this particular practice was uh, there would be students who would steal 
Twix bars out of the lunch run. I don't know if you, they're, they're just the single serving, not the double ones. It was just the, the single Twix bar in a wrapper and that stood um, kind of outside of where the lunch ladies were. So they were behind there with you know, everything that they were serving. And in front of that, there was a, some things you could grab. And one of them was a bowl that had Twix bars in it. And so a lot of my friends would go by, and again, for all of the middle schoolers here, I'm not um, saying this is what you should do. I'm saying this was the practice, and you'll see what happened when I decided to, to participate in said practice. So this is, just so you know, I'm not encouraging theft. Uh, but that is what happened in our middle school, is that commonly people would come and they would take a Twix bar and slide it in their pocket and go on out. Again, as I said, this was not something that I participated in much, but there was one day that I got a little bit of a wild hair. And I said, you know what? I'm gonna, I don't want to pay my 35 cents for my Twix bar this morning or this afternoon, so I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to steal this Twix bar and I'm going to stick it in my pocket just so I can be like everybody else. And so I get in line, I get up there, we get to it, take it out, slip it in my pocket, and I get to pay. And the lunch lady says, is this everything? Of course, of course this is everything. She goes, are you sure? <laughs> I'm sure, this is everything. She goes, what about that Twix bar in your pocket? Ah, caught. All right, so I pull it out. She charged me for it, and she calls the counselor, Mrs. Kempf, over. And she says, Mrs. Mrs. Kempf, Drew, uh, tried to steal a Twix bar here. We figured you'd be able to handle this situation uh, properly. So she comes, and again, I'm friends with her son. Her son's a year older than I am, so I'm good buddies with him. And so she's like, Drew, this is, this is kind of out of character for you. So I don't really know what to do, but let's go back to my office. So we walk back to her office, and we get there, and she goes, as, after we get there, she goes, I was thinking about it, and I thought, you know the best person to handle this situation? Your mother. <laughs> Perfect. So we sit down, and she calls my mom. And she gets on, hey, Patsy, how are you doing? Mrs. Kemp here at school. Um, I've got your son here with me, and he's got something he'd like to tell you. And so then I got to confess, yeah, I stole a Twix bar out of the lunchroom today, Mom. And she said, there are some actions we're going to take here at school because we need to, but ultimately we thought that you could discipline him more appropriately. And so here we're just going to make him sit by himself for a week at a table because I'm extroverted and I like to be around people, so sitting me in isolation was the best punishment you could have given me in school. But what my mom and dad did, and this is to their credit, they parented and they disciplined the heart and not the action. So the action I did was not right. The action I did was wrong, but what was more important was my heart behind it. I wanted to fit in with everybody else. I wanted to do what everyone else was doing, and my parents recognized that. And so their punishment for me was, for the next month, you have to take your lunch to school with you in a brown paper bag. Now, in my middle school, no one did this. No one brought their lunch. Everyone got school lunch, especially the cool kids, and I wanted to be one of the cool kids, so I did not want to take my lunch to school. And my parents knew this, and so for a month, I had to brown bag my lunch to school every day. My parents disciplined the heart, not the action. And that's what we're going to see with Paul here. When Paul addresses the problems that happen here in Corinth, he's going to respond and give them correction based on the heart, not on the action. Now, to finish the story, just in case you're curious, um, I did sit at a lunch table by myself, and the next day it was positioned right at the exit where kids would come out after they got their trays with all their food. And as I'm sitting there, kid after kid is throwing a Twix bar on my table. <laughs> 
It's not that hard, Drew. This is how you do it. And just toss them. I had a whole pile of Twix bars that lasted me for I don't know how long after that. So it was not that hard. I just, uh, God had a lesson that he wanted to teach me through it. And so anyways, Paul want, is, wants to focus on the heart. And the, the, his encouragement to us is this. He wants us to view our problems and our situations through the lens of the gospel. Through the lens of the gospel is what he wants us to see and how he wants us to focus. Now you may be thinking, well, if he wants us to view things through the gospel, what's Paul's definition of the gospel? How does he define it? How should we see that? I'm glad you asked. You guys are thinking very deeply for 1042 in the morning. Good work. If you have your Bibles, go to 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 5. So he gives this to the Corinthians. This is found in the letter that he wrote them. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 5, here is Paul's definition that he told the Corinthians and that was passed on to us of what the gospel is. 15, verse 1. Now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preach to you. He wants to make this clear to them which you received and on which you've taken your stand and by which you've been saved if you hold to the message I preach to you. So this is, what, this is what saves us if we hold to this, this message, unless you believe in vain. So unless, again, what he's telling them, if you believe this, this is what, if you believe in vain, you can't hold to it. But this is the gospel that I preach to you. Verse three. For I passed on to you as of most important what I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. There's first. Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. That he was buried and raised on the third day according to the Scripture. And that he appeared to Cephas, who's Peter, and to the twelve. So Paul's gospel includes Christ dying for our sins according to the Scriptures. Again, this is really important. This is prophecy that is being fulfilled. That's part of the gospel is Jesus is who God said he was and did what God said he was going to do. He died for our sins according to the scriptures, was buried and raised again according to the scriptures, and then appeared to those closest to him. That is the gospel. We believe that Christ is who God said he was and that he died for our sins and that he raised and conquered death for our benefit. So that's Paul's gospel. That is the good news that he wants us to see this, these problems through. Now in 1 Corinthians, there are five problems that we see. There are five major issues going on that Paul's going to address. We're not going to take time to cover all five of them today, but if you're interested, on the seat back in front of you, there's a QR code, and that's to the digital bulletin. I think there's a link that'll be on the screen. But if you scan that QR code, that brings you to a digital bulletin, and it'll give you, there, on there is a link to the Bible Project. Bible Project is, a, is an organization out of Portland who puts together great content to help us understand Scripture better. It's about an eight-minute video that gives an overview of the whole book of 1 Corinthians, including this. And you'll recognize, I used it as a source. It was one of those things that I used in preparation for today. But you can see the other four issues that were going on in the Church of Corinth if you go to that link. For today... I want to focus in on the problem or the issue of food that was going on in Corinth at the time. And Paul does this in chapters 8 through chapter 10. And again, let's remember, this is a blended church. This is a church made up of Greeks, some that are Jewish, some that are Gentile. So it's a multi-ethnic, multicultural church 
that has two religious backgrounds that are now coming together to worship and see Jesus as king. And what they're arguing over is whether they should eat food sacrificed to idols. Whether they should eat food sacrificed to idols. Now to us, no big deal. We don't have idols that we sacrifice things to, right? We, we don't understand this context. We'll put it in our context here in a little bit. But this is the main issue that they're arguing. There's food that there, there's meat that's being eaten that was originally sacrificed to idols. So why is there tension? Okay, so let's, let's take a look at the Jewish people, right? So Jewish people that have now decided to follow Jesus. If they grew up in a good Jewish home, you didn't eat meat sacrificed to idols, you just didn't do it. That went against the law. And if you were a good Jewish person, your parents didn't do it. You didn't do it. So you, it was ingrained in you that you didn't eat meat that was sacrificed to idols. Now, if you grew up Gentile, non-Jewish, you probably did this on a regular basis. Because in a city like this, most of the meat that you would buy in the market was, was from the uh, meat that was sacrificed to idols. Again, this wasn't a rural area where you had a whole lot of extra cattle or whatever meat you were going to eat around. And so if you wanted to eat meat, you'd go to the market and you'd get meat. And the meat that the market got was from the temple, from, this, from these idols that was sacrificed to them. And so they would recycle this meat and that's what you would eat. And so if you were a Gentile, this is just what you grew up doing and you saw nothing wrong with it. Probably more than that, you probably thought it was something good to do because, again, if you're worshiping these idols, if you're eating meat that was sacrificed to them, it could, be, could have been seen as more blessed. So here you have two groups of people. One, they have, eaten this food, they have not eaten this food. And they understand that this is not good and they were obeying the Jewish law. And then you have these Gentiles who came in and they've done this their whole life. And they're saying, this is just fine. I can follow Jesus and still do what I've done. What do we do? And there's a tension that arises between these two groups of people. What is the right way and what is the wrong way? Again, for us, this is not an issue that we bump into a whole lot. So I thought for, for our purposes today, what we would focus on is how we should dress when we come to church. Because this one's not super controversial, but we understand it, right? If you grew up in the church, more than likely you, you grew up dressing a little bit nicer when you came right? Because the thought behind it, especially when I was younger, was you're going to church, so you need to put on your best for God. So if you have a nice outfit, you wear that on Sunday, and you want to dress your best for God. If you have just recently started coming to church, um, our culture in general has started to dress down more. And so we can come in whatever we want to wear, and it's not a big deal, and we don't have to put on our best for God, we can just come in what's comfortable. And what's comfortable for us looks very different. There are some of you here that might be still in your pajamas. We are glad that you're here. But growing up, if I would have worn jeans to church, that was a big no-no. So the fact that I'm on stage right now wearing jeans, my, my, my mom would not have approved. The only time I was able to wear jeans growing up is when we were going to church camp later, immediately after church. Other than that, it was khaki pants. So there are some of us who stand here and say it is important to honor God with how we dress and make sure we present God with our best. And there are some of us here who think, you know what, God is just glad that I'm here and the way that I present myself, the way that I dress does not matter all that much. Why are we making it a big deal? So that, that's going to be the tension that we're going to go with today. All right, everybody good with that? Okay. If you're not, that's still what we're going to do. I shouldn't have asked your permission there. <laughs> 
So let's see how Paul addresses this. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and we're going to be in verse 1. So flip over a couple pages, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Verses 1 to 3. Now about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all have knowledge. You see the quotes there? We all have knowledge. This would have been a saying that they said often in that area. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he does not yet know what he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. What's Paul saying here? Knowledge, we all have knowledge. Knowledge is a good thing. And I think that's even something that for us today we can, we, we can identify with, that for us, knowledge is important. And we want to make sure that we're able to, to gather as much knowledge as we can about things. But what Paul's saying here is that knowledge puffs up. And that we can start to get this where we take pride in the knowledge that we have. And what Paul wants us to do is love. So in following Jesus, it's not about knowing the right things. It's about loving the right way. It's not about knowing the right things. It's about loving the right way. I think a thing that we, const- we can tend to slip into, especially in our world today where we have information flying at us from a thousand different directions, is I'm re- am I reading the right person? Am, am, I, am I watching the right person? And if you're not watching what I'm watching or reading what I'm reading, then you're wrong and I'm right. And we get so concerned about the knowledge that we're consuming that we forget to love one another. Again, let's go back to see things through the lens of the gospel. What's the gospel say? Jesus died for our sins, not his sins. He didn't sin. He died for our sins, for our benefit. And he was buried and raised again for our benefit, not for his, but for ours. So his sacrifice on the cross was not about himself, but was about love for others. And God, and what Paul is doing here is encouraging us to treat others the same way. To make sure that when we view a situation, when we view a, dis, a, a, a disagreement, that we don't stand on our knowledge and what we know and take a stand there, but we take a stand and focus more on the love that we have for each other, not the knowledge that we have that's going to separate us. That's Paul's first encouragement to us. Love over knowledge. Love over knowledge. Okay, let's continue on. Eight, verses eight through nine. Food will not bring us close to God. We are not worse off if we don't eat it. We are not better if we do eat it. But be careful that this right of yours is no ways becomes a stumbling block for the weak. So Paul gets right at it. The food doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you eat it. It doesn't matter if you don't. You're not better if you do. You're not better if you don't. This is a freedom that you have. But let's be careful that in that freedom, it doesn't become a stumbling block for somebody else. Again, it takes the focus off of us and it puts it onto others. I'm not closer to Jesus now because my parents made me wear khakis when I was little. I'm not closer to Jesus now because I let my kids wear shorts to church. What we wear does not bring us closer to God. But in that freedom that we have, are we making sure that it's not a stumbling block for others? So if you're in a context, maybe you're not here in the greater Lafayette area, you're not here at Calvary, but you move to a place where the way that you dress is more important. 
that how you present yourself in that context is more important to that local congregation. What would it look like for, for you or me to submit what we want to do in order for the benefit of the community? To not just make it all about us, but focus on other people. Again, when we view things through the lens of the gospel, it is focused on others. It's about others, not ourselves. And when we shift the focus off of us, then the gospel compels us to love others. And Paul goes on to say this in chapter 9, verses 22 through 23. He, he hits on this a little bit more. It says this, I have become all things to all people, so that by every possible means, say I will save some, or some will be saved. Now I do this because of the gospel, so that I may share it, share in its blessings. You see, by loving others, by putting others ahead of ourselves, when we do that through the lens of the gospels and we're able to share in the blessing of the gospel. And I feel like in the church today, the Big C Church, this is where we have started to come up a little bit short. When we look at the decline, especially here in America, that we see in the church, I think a major reason for that is because we have made minor things major things. We've made minor things major things, and because of that, we've taken a stand on something other than the gospel. And because we've taken a stand on something other than the gospel, which is loving others and doing things for their benefit and not our own, then, we've, then things have started to divide. And if we were to come back and to view things through the lens of the gospel, then we would be able to share in the blessing that comes from it. When we build one another up, not tear each other down, but when we build one another up. If I'm being transparent with you, I think as followers of Jesus inside the church, we have been a poor example to the world around us of how to love each other. I think if anything, we've made it look worse that we in the church that follow Jesus treat one another worse than those outside the church treat each other. And that's something we need to change, people. <laughs> and I need to start. I'm, I, I say we. I'm being very purposeful with the language that I'm using. We need to change that. We need to be in, inspired. We need to, need to live with a gospel view of things and not just a selfish view of everything and live in submission to God and to Jesus and what he's called us to do, not just for what we want to do. Let's go ahead and look in chapter 10 as Paul finishes up with his kind of final um, bit of advice for them in this current issue. So 1 Corinthians 10, 23 and 24. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything builds up. No one is to seek his own good, but the good of another person. And if you jump down to 1031, so whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. And that's where I know that I can get off kilter a little bit. Is that I, I know that we have freedom. I know that I have freedom. And I'm thankful for that. But there are often times that that freedom that I have, I use it for my own benefit. And as I was preparing for this, the overarching thing that I got was we need to love each other and that we need to put the other person first. And that's how we view things and view our situations through the lens of the gospel. But if I'm transparent with you, most of the time I want to do what's best for me. 
I want to do what's best for me. I want to do what's best, what I think is right. And if it happens to benefit others in the process, that's just a win. But for me, I want to do what I want to do. And I have to sometimes daily sacrifice that for the betterment of other and for God's glory. If I'm going to live as Christ has called me to live. It's not about me. It's about others. And this is a constant, this is a consistent battle that we see in Scripture and see in our world today. This is the battle between what my flesh wants and what the Spirit wants. My flesh wants to do me. My flesh wants me to get my way and what I want to do. And Spirit saying, no, because of what Jesus has done, this is how you should live. And this is a constant battle that through life, I am having to battle and overcome. This is a battle that you are going to have to deal with if we are going to follow Jesus. But if we start to take steps, and this goes a little bit back to what Daniel said last week. In his daily training, he said, we should be applying a focused training with a kingdom mindset. Same thing. We're supposed to see things with a gospel lens. And as we start to do that, as we start to put that into practice, as we start to not do what we want to do, but we start to do what's best for others, what's loving towards others, as we start to do that, over time, we can become the type of person who puts the good of others before our own good. But it's going to take time, intentionality, practice, making sure that we are trying to bring glory to God and not glory to ourselves. There's a pastor that I follow. Um, I like to listen to his podcast. He's out of Colorado. And this last week I was listening to, uh, to his podcast and there was a question that he had or a statement that he made that really kind of stuck out to me and, and I felt like it fit here. That a lot of times uh, when it comes to following Jesus, we're asking the wrong questions. That a lot of times when it comes to following Jesus and how we should live and how we shouldn't live, this is the question we usually ask. If I do this or if I don't do this, am I going to hell or am I saved? If I do this, does it mean I'm going to go to hell? Or if I'm not doing this, does it mean that I'm saved because I'm not doing it? And if we're honest and transparent with each other, deciding who's saved and who's not, that's above our pay grade. That's not up for us. That is between someone else and God to decide where they're at in salvation, if they've submitted their lives to him. That's not up for us to decide. That's above our pay grade. So instead of asking, if I do this or I do this, am I saved or am I not? What if we ask a better question, which is like, if I am saved, if I, am, if I do desire, if I, if I see myself, if I've really given my life over to Jesus, is the thing that I'm doing God's best for me? And then make the decision. Or if, you're, if we're looking at us as a whole and looking at other people, instead of saying, oh, they're doing this, there's no way they're saved. Or, oh, yes, that person's acting this way, that, that person is definitely saved. Instead of viewing others through that lens, what if we just said, if that person is saved, is what they are doing God's best for them? Because we know, left up to our own devices, we are going to do things that we should and should not do. Things that are going to align with how God has called us to live or how he's not called us to live. But instead of just asking it from the basis of, am I saved or if I'm not, why don't we start asking, is this God's best for me or best for the other person? And allow that to be the foundation and ask that question. Instead of just the easy, am I saved, am I not? Is he or she saved or he or she not? Is what, is the way that we are living, is it, through a, is it seen through a gospel lens? And is it God's best for us? 
So that leads me to my daily training for today, our daily training. So this week, see your situation through the lens of the gospel because of Jesus' resurrection. So in a room like this today, I don't know what everyone else is going through. I don't know what your situation is like. I don't know what the week looks like ahead for you. But my encouragement to all of us is no matter what we're going through, that we view it through the lens of the gospel. In light of Jesus' resurrection, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried and raised again for our benefit, not for his. If we view things in that light, then it should change the way that we view our circumstances, view our situations. So this week, my prayer my challenge to all of us is to see things through that lens. And one of the best ways to do that, one of the ways that Jesus gave his disciples and has been passed down through church history is doing that through the practice of communion. So we're going to do that together today. So if you came in and you didn't grab um, one of these on your way in, just raise your hand. We have deacons in the back who will come up and get you. Just raise your hand. They'll bring it in um, and we'll take this together. But it, as I said earlier, in the early church, they didn't gather like this on a Sunday morning. More often than not, they gathered around a table in a home. And when they gathered to break bread together, they did it over a table. And when they came to this practice, when they took this together, this was a reminder of how they were living. This was a reminder that that they needed to see things through a different lens. We still have a couple more over here. One down front that needs one, and a couple more. Just raise your hands, they'll get to you. But it was a reminder to them that we need each other, that we need Jesus. And so we are going to use that today. And Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, allowed this to serve as a reminder. So in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26, we get the account of what happened in that upper room with Jesus. And we're going to allow that to guide us as we take communion today. Verse 23 says this, For I receive from the Lord what I pass on now to you. On the night that he, Jesus, was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said to them, This is my body, which is for you. Every time you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Let's remember our Lord's sacrifice for us. 25. In the same way, he took the cup. And after supper said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's remember that together today. Father God, thank you for your promises. Father God, thank you for the daily reminder that we can have in communion that it can serve as a reminder to us, Lord, that this life is not about ourselves. It's not about our knowledge and the things that we have, Lord, but it's about loving others because you loved us. Amidst our sin, amidst our brokenness, Father, you loved us and you died for us. 
because you wanted to demonstrate to us how much you loved us. And Father, we recognize that in the world that we live in today, we can make most and much of what we think and what we believe is right and what we believe is best, Lord. But I pray that we would start to ask a better question. Is, is, is this what you say is best for us? And as followers of Jesus, that we would submit to that. And so this week, as we go, I pray that when we come to circumstances where we are feeling our flesh want to come out and to make a selfish decision because this is what I want to do, I pray that we remember this moment right now where we remembered your body that was broken for us. We remembered the cup and your blood that was shed for us and that we take a humble posture. We become curious. And ultimately, Lord, we want to bring you glory through our actions and the way that we live. Thank you for your patience with us as we're in process. We love you. Amen.